Lisa Hurwitz, give me names. Joe Horn and Frank Hardart. Welcome to Give Me a Name, where a guest presents me, Ben Kirschenbaum, with a dead historical figure they find interesting, and we discuss. This is the first episode with two names, which makes this episode, despite its pleasant subject, shrouded in controversy. Okay, I am here with Lisa Hurwitz talking about Horn and Hardart, specifically Frank Hardart and Joseph Horn, who were the founders of a chain of restaurants, food services called Horn and Hardart's Automats. And you have made a film about it, which I've now seen twice and enjoyed both times. What got you interested in the Automat and the history of the Automat? I was kind of obsessed with cafeterias and the Automat is a prolific cafeteria. It sort of stands out from all the other cafeterias because it has an Automat side to it, which is where people would put coins and slots and take food out of little glass windows. But like a cafeteria, the Automat also had a steam table and communal seating. So yes, it was kind of a hybrid cafeteria. And because of these Automats, it, it became very iconic and it appeared in many facets of American culture from film to radio to print to literature. And did you study history in school? I studied a little bit of everything. Yeah. But I, it was just this weird path. I've sort of always had like side interests, something to keep you up late at night, you know, pondering and projects that mean something. So cafeterias is a very specific interest, I would, <laughs> I would definitely say. Yeah, well, I I even went to go work in one. Okay. So, I mean, this interest started during college, and, and so naturally I thought during one of my summer vacations it would be a good idea to go work in a cafeteria. So I f- found myself at a summer camp cafeteria in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. I was living in Seattle at the time. I did not last in this cafeteria. I mean, I was also kind of obsessed with cooking at the time, like Martha Stewart. I wanted to buy all her things. I wanted to read all her publications. I was just like, oh my gosh, this woman is just, she's the boss. And she's like made an empire. And I was fascinated by her. So yeah, I mean, at that point, I also had a public access television show called Martha and Me. So I mean, I was interested in like all kind of food things really and so I was hoping that I was going to be cooking in this cafeteria at least that's what I sort of was told was going to be happening but I was really mostly just cleaning which was real it was really grueling yeah it was I imagine. really grueling and you know they have you working there like seven days a week and you've got weird hours you've got breaks during the middle of the day in between meals how did you get into film well I got into film because I got into cafeterias. So I... Is that... You think that's a pretty... Is that a common gateway? Or is... It's <laughs> <sighs> a good question, like how some people, you know, stumble their way into film. But I had took a couple film classes in high school. And then in college, I was trying to find a volunteer opportunity, like some sort of community to become a part of. And there was this 1920s movie palace that... I was just kind of drawn towards and Mm -hmm. the head projectionist there, uh, he was, 
I just felt so like welcomed into the projectionist booth and they were looking for volunteer projectionists and he showed me the ropes. So that's really where I started with the film thing. And when I was at that theater was when, you know, I began on the the Automat journey and that was a long time ago. So the Automat, which is still currently in theaters? So at this point, it's playing in film festivals at synagogues, JCCs, and it's available online as well. Amazon Prime Video Store. It's coming out on DVD in September from Kino Lorber. That DVD is going to have a lot of extras, like a, a special new introduction to the film by Mel Brooks, his full interview. And so I was going to say, uh, without giving anything too much away about the automatic, it's filled with a lot of famous people. Mel Brooks is one of the pillars of the movie, I would say. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Colin Powell, Carl Reiner, Elliot Gould, and a lot of people who were touched in some way by the automatic and have these very fond memories of being there and the communal aspect of it, like you said. When I came away from the movie i felt like nostalgia was kind of like one of the main themes of it because i've never been to an automat the last one closed in 91 a year after i was born and did you ever go to an automat i never you seem like no i'm i'm born in 90 also yeah so everyone recalls the food and they speak so glowingly of both the sweet and savory they talk a lot about the pies and then they also talk about the spinach and the salisbury steak and stuff one thing I was kind of wondering, do you think that they remember it more that it was better than it actually was kind of thing? Like, just because it's such a big part of their past? No, I don't think that they remember it as better than it was. I think that it was genuinely really good. There's some people who remember it, not so many people, but people who went during the decline, they tell it like it is, all the unpleasant things, the declining quality of the food that had been sitting there for a long time, people's, you know, inappropriate behavior, an increasingly unsavory place that felt dated and it lacked the specialness that it completely 1000% had in the year 1900. Mm -hmm. So yeah, getting to sort of the origins of it and to the two subjects of this specific pod. So Frank Hardert was from New Orleans. He lived in New Orleans, but he emigrated to New Orleans from Germany with Mm -hmm. his widowed mother and siblings. And so they came without much money. And also New Orleans wasn't a particularly German place, but they were so poor that they couldn't move to somewhere where there were more Germans, where they would be able to more easily kind of assimilate. And he found himself from a very young age working jobs, like as early as preteen, he was working. And he actually discovered a love in the process for restaurants. And so he kept at that. And he had an idea eventually because he saw that the way that people gravitated to that New Orleans French style drip coffee that he was serving and that you know, it really t- it took New Orleans by storm. And he had an idea, well, why don't, why don't I bring this coffee somewhere else? 
So he did end up in Philadelphia for the exposition, but it wasn't immediate that he was able to actually make that idea happen. He didn't have the money to, he, he didn't even have the money for a train ticket to get back to New Orleans. So he definitely didn't have the money to start a restaurant, but he was looking and he went back to New Orleans. Eventually, he married another immigrant, an Irish woman, and she believed in him. And they moved back to Philadelphia because that's where he really wanted to be. And he was working in restaurants. And then that's at that time is when he finally connects with Joseph Horn. Right. And we're talking late 1800s, Harder born in 1850. And like you're saying, it took a while for all this to actually happen. How did Hardard meet Horn? There's a couple variations of the story. The most credible source that I have, which uh-huh. is a human being who actually knew Joseph Horn, because, I mean, let's, I mean, as nicely as I can put it, I mean, this person is older. It's got to be. Yeah, He's an yeah. older person. Fair enough. Yeah. And Horn died in 41. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Edwin, who's, one of the characters in the documentary, his father was president of the company for a long time after Horn died. Mm-hmm. And Edwin tells me that Joseph Horn put a sign in a window saying that he was looking for a business partner. And Frank Hardart saw that sign and said, I'm your man. The version of the story that I'd say is a bit more common is that Joseph Horn put an ad in a newspaper saying he was looking for a partner. And then Frank Hardart saw that ad and sent him a note on a sugar sack because he didn't actually have paper because he was so poor saying, I'm your man. And Horn, born in 1861, so he's a little bit younger than Hardart. He was from Philadelphia. Horn was from Philadelphia. Also... The Horns are also, they're like Baltimore people too. I've also heard that he was born in Baltimore, but the, the way that everyone says he's from Philly. There was also a Horn and Horn lunchroom in Baltimore that was run by his relatives. But anyways, Joseph Horn came from definitely a more privileged background than Frank Hardart. And Joseph Horn had brothers that were already in the restaurant business and he actually just wanted to work with them, but they didn't want him. I don't know why they didn't want him, but they didn't want him to be involved in their restaurant. So he had to, you know, do his own thing. And he definitely got an earlier start. Frank Carter was nearly 40, I think, by the time the two of them met. And being like 10 years younger, Joseph Horn was in his late 20s by the time that they got this restaurant off the ground, which you can th- that's pretty impressive, like to oh yeah to be in your late 20s and to start a successful restaurant. Yeah, not bad. So they started their first restaurant in 1888 in Philadelphia. Which was a lunchroom. And that's not the automat that the movie is about. No, that's more like a bar-type seating and coffee. That New Orleans drip coffee. The French drip. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the big innovations of the places that they would create. Yes. They were known for their coffee. First of all, I guess I should just say, what what exactly is a automat, just sort of generally speaking? 
An automat is a type of a cafeteria where you put coins in slots to take food out of little glass windows. And so just like you have tissues versus Kleenex, automat is actually a generic type name. You can have automats everywhere. And in fact, there were automats in other parts of the country. But this was the Horn and Hard Art automat. And by far, it was the most well-known, successful of the automats that were in the United States. They're only in Philly originally, and then they moved to New York in the early 1900s. In the early 1900s, you have sort of the rise of the automat. And it seems like the golden age was... It actually was the Depression really through the early 60s. They had a very long, I mean, by what standards, but their heyday, you know, the golden era, it was a few decades. They were a prolific American restaurant chain with volumes of business that put them as the number one restaurant in the country up until McDonald's. Sort of sadly, a lot of the Horn and Hardarts eventually do get replaced by Burger Kings. They started, they, they left New York City and they started working on projects that weren't here. And mm. they were very involved with the growth of the Bojangles chain in the U.S. In terms of New York City, it was mainly Arby's and Burger Kings that they were converting their automat spaces into. In some cases, they were also introducing more sit-down type restaurant service, themed restaurants. They had some variations of the automat called the Dynomat, which was like a, a jukebox, 1950s diner type joint. And all the stuff that you're describing now are after Horn and Harder pass away. Yes, so... Horn died, and it was expected. And he had brought someone in to take over for him someday. And, and Edwin had been with the company for a long time. So when Horn died, he was prepared. And also the, the landscape of the food situation, it hadn't changed yet so drastically. After World War II, that's when things really changed. And under Edwin's leadership... The company had some really good decades. And, you know, I think part of, part of why today people still, you know, reminisce so fondly about the Automat was there was really nothing like it. And the quality that you would get for the amount of money was just incomparable. And Harder dies well before Horn dies. Horn in 41 yeah. and Harder in 1918. It's also too bad because the two were in the middle of a bit of a feud the time that Frank Hardart died. And what was the feud over? The feud was over expansion because Joseph Horn wanted to expand. Mm -hmm. And Frank Hardart coming from more of a, you know, he was just happy. He was, he was very happy with the success that they were already having and didn't want to jeopardize it and part of the way that they resolved this was that the New York company which ended up being the more prolific in the end of the two companies that company 
became the company of Joseph Horn and Frank Cardart. He kept the the Philadelphia business, and they were two separate entities. And then, of course, actually, when Frank Cardart did die, then Joseph Horn went back to kind of running both. But they had their separate domains, and in the end... The Automat was way more embraced by New York City than it was Philadelphia. It was the perfect thing for the city at that time. You know, New York, it's always been a fast-paced city. And people in Philadelphia, they were, in the end, looking for something a little bit more relaxed. And, you know, the Automat, it's a it's a spectacle. And it's it's efficient. And it's so New York it really this is also part of why the the, the film you know is resonating with people because it really just captures this New York that's gone and the timing of it in terms of its long stretch of success also makes sense just sort of historically because a lot of women in the workplace that that's touched on in the movie at this particular time period and having to get lunch in the middle of the day and then also the downfall kind of coincides a little bit with the interstate highway and the migration to the suburbs. What would you say, other than the good food, other than the good coffee, and other than capturing this New York essence, why do you think that the characters in the movie re- reflect on it so, so fondly? Because all of them really, almost it brings tears to their eyes. I think this place was like a second home for people and it was just tied into these very special memories of going there with loved ones who are no longer alive or just simpler, sweet times. Mel Brooks talks about going there with his brothers and the thrill of his brother giving him those nickels. Ruth Bader Ginsburg reminisces about going there by herself when she was waiting to go into her piano lessons. Colin Powell used to be put in charge of going to the Horn and Hardart retail shop to pick up a apple pie for his family's dinner once a week. That was always, as he put it, the highlight of his week's experience to go and fetch the, the pie for the family. And it was a special place for people. It, we can try to understand it. We can try to explain it, but it was just magical the way people felt being in there. It was just a positive, and this is me talking from like a you know filmmaker point of view, having spoken to so many people, interviewed so many people. The place just had this positivity that I recognized from the, the people that I spoke to. And as, as Mel Brooks put it in his interview, the place was just up mm. and it had a really good vibe. I like, I, it's hard to imagine somebody in the year, you know, 1902 saying, oh yeah, that, that cafeteria has got a great vibe. Sure. But I think that's what they were thinking. I'm not sure what the word for vibe was yet, but it was vibing in there. Yeah, it's they hip. They were vibing. Uh, it was hip. Yeah. You, know, you, you put on your most swanky bowler Right, hat, right. And people would meet at the Automat. I mean, it was, it was a place that you could go by yourself, but that you could meet with people or you could be unbothered. It, it sort of was just a very 
seems to me like a very flexible, beautiful space. And yes, it could get very congested in there, but there was plenty of space in there for everyone. And also it it wasn't always congested in there, like during off hours. And there are people who would just hang out there. But it it just sort of gets at this thing that's really gone now, which is, first of all, beauty in everything. Because nowadays, we're so much less formal than we were back then. And the standards of building have changed. The standards of companies have changed. The standards of humans and just customers have changed. And when we look back at that, we see something lost and beautiful in the film when you really start thinking you just you start thinking about it and you're you're just like oh my goodness you kind of just get wrapped up in trying to figure it out like the the people that I would interview it's like they went on a journey honestly during their interviews from like Mm -hmm. point a to point b and as you reminisce about it and you just lay out the facts, you're just kind of more and more blown away. And I think that the film does that. You're obviously intrigued enough to walk in the door and go see the film, but then by the end, it's like, my gosh, what an amazing concept. And it's inspiring to people, I think, on many different levels because... It's not revolutionary what they did necessarily. A restaurant. A restaurant with coins. A nickel thrower. We haven't spoken yet about the nickel thrower. That's the that's the woman who changes your dollars into nickels. And she was a rather uh, important person mm. at the Automats. Who is it that reminisced that the nickel thrower could just... If I feel exactly how many nickels you needed kind of thing. Well, that was Mel Brooks. But honestly, everybody, when they tell me about their nickel thrower memories, everybody talks about how they would marvel at how she just knew. Just by touching the nickels, she knew how many were 20. She didn't even have to count or look. But they made something inexplicably, I mean, it's just crazy. I know it's like, our film is really, I mean, it, it's COVID. We're a small, independent, self-distributed film. But we're one of the, and I get, we're talking documentaries here. So like, don't like, I'm not a billionaire, believe me. But like, we're one of the highest grossing documentaries of 2022. But again, it's COVID right now. Yeah. Like, uh, it's not like, gosh, remember... What did Fahrenheit 9-11 do? And like, there's just bowling. Like, there were documentaries that used to make tens of millions of dollars in uh, movie theaters. Now, now documentaries, a really good documentary in 2022 would make half a million in the box office. And that's kind of the cap. And, you know, the theaters keep most of that. Sure. Also, the kind of irony of it coming out during COVID, a movie about community and very much being out and about in a I feel like do you think that that maybe played a little bit of a part in how the movie's resonating with so many people people kept telling me that the film was perfect for the moment because of the feelings that people were having about about being alienated and I just 
sort of think that's con- a convenient explanation sure. because I, I personally imagine that the film would still have really resonated with people even if there never had been a, a COVID. When our film came out in theaters, for many people who I spoke to, it was the first film that they had gone to see in a theater since before COVID. Mm-hmm. I think it was a nice introduction back into the theater. I think that it was something really moving and sentimental. And even though the film has a sad ending, it's still an optimistic ending, which is kind of strange. But there's this abundance, I'd say, of films that are, you know, difficult, especially documentaries. You know, documentaries oftentimes are about difficult subjects. Oh, yeah, they're heavy. Yeah, usually if someone recommends me a documentary, it's not light. Yeah. And also a lot of Jewish films, which this falls into the category of two, they're also heavy and they're about the Holocaust. And also a lot of films are really long. And ours is comical. It's short. It it was a feel-good film at a time when I understand a lot of people weren't feeling all that great. So... Yeah, although I t- part of me does feel like that's a little bit of an overly simplistic assessment of why the the film was the right film for the moment. I kind of just like I feel like the automat is timeless. I sort of feel like the movie is timeless too and of course it doesn't stop people from dying. Like half of the the cast of the film has since passed away and Carl Reiner never saw the film. Ruth Bader Ginsburg never saw the film. Colin Powell never saw the film. Mel Brooks did see the film, and he loved it. John Romis, before he died, he was the engineer on the film. He did see cuts of the film. Fortunately, Edwin Daly is still alive, and he has seen the film. People all the time are saying how the film is the perfect film during COVID because of the way that we've all been so separate. I was in Central Park for a free One Republic Good Morning America concert this morning and the band kept on making references about how great it is that we're all back together and that they haven't uh, played a show here in three years and how it's so great to be back on tour and yet I saw them in New York last summer again on Good Morning America and I think that sometimes people, I don't know, they get a little carried away with their statements and maybe I'm a little desensitized at this point but again our film premiered in September I started going back to movies again when our film premiered which is September 2021 at the Telluride Film Festival and the mood there was definitely kind of weird people were they were there they were very concerned I mean you had to have wrist you know COVID screened wristbands to get into theaters For certain events, these wristbands expired, I think, every 48 hours, and you needed to keep getting retested, masks everywhere. But anyways, it's taken some people longer, I think, to feel comfortable with this new normal. Yeah. But when we premiered, and our film, it it appeals to an older audience, when we theatrically premiered at Film Forum in February... 
And I was there a lot doing Q&As. So many people were telling me this is the first time they were back in the, the theater. And so I guess I'm kind of just feel it's like I'm assuming like everybody started going back to life back then too. But we're always going to need stuff to make us feel good. I don't know if the problem is so much COVID as it is the overall world that we live in and even things that we choose to subject ourselves to. I can't stand all of the violence that's presented in the media, video games. We're choosing this path for ourselves. So I just think we're all, I I don't, I'm not the type of, I'm such a like, I'm a warm and fuzzy person. It's very hard for me to imagine myself making films that are like dark and serious. I can do. And we did. The Automat is a serious film, but it's also warm and fuzzy and it's comical. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we just have this kind of fixation nowadays. I, I mean, I, what do, again, what do I know? But it just my observation is that people love to sort of explore their fears and I'm just kind of like, why? <laughs> like, why? If you're going to show, let's say, a woman getting raped, you know, there's got to be a why. Like, you have to y- use that terrible thing to talk about an important issue, uh, not just for, like, s- sex appeal or something. And I just, again, <laughs> I think we're always just going to need happy stuff in this world and that like we could like do away with a lot of the dark gratuitous stuff and I hope there are more automat films in the future that show us how these things in our lives when we examine them that there's so much more that we never could have imagined and just to to recognize the beauty and the miracle and the the specialness in everything. And of course, one of the, aside from the nostalgia, one of the kind of takeaways of the film has to do with the, a business that provided something really good for its customers. And hopefully that's something that people, I know that they do, some people do, but like, yeah, the automat's gone, but we absolutely can keep the spirit of the automat alive by creating things that are actually good for people and that are innovative. You know, it doesn't have to be an automat. And it can be just a little thing too. It's like, yes, the automat, it's like, yes and no, was the automat revolutionary? But it's like, it just doesn't have to, it's like not always rocket science. Mm-hmm. I've learned with distributing this film because it's everyone's like, oh my God, you like distributed your own film. And I'm like, believe me, I was saying the same thing as you when I first, I'm like, how the heck am I going to do this? We tried so hard to find distribution. We shopped it around multiple times. When we decided to distribute it ourselves, it wasn't because we wanted to. It was because we didn't feel like we had another choice. It's not rocket science. But yet it is kind of revolutionary in the sense that since before COVID, nobody has self-released a film and then had the 
quote success that we have had. Mm. And it's really anyone can do it. But in some circles, people would say what we did this year was kind of revolutionary. But again, you don't really have to, you don't have to start a revolution. You just sort of have to have a really good, a little, a little good idea. I think it would just be a lot of uh, pressure. You don't have to be genius to do something good. And I don't necessarily think the automat was genius or like a lot of the things out there that are successful or the most popular high grossing things today aren't they're not genius a lot of it is even just good marketing but probably all these things do have something that sets them apart and you know Joseph Horn and Frank Hardart their coffee really set them apart it was incredible coffee I am told and they offered really beautiful spaces really affordable prices and then they made technology, turn-of-the-century technology, available to anybody. It wasn't expensive. So that stuff isn't rocket science, what they did. But they did something smart, and they developed a very loyal base of customers. And people from all over the world would strive to make it to New York so that they could go check it out. And many of the people who have seen this film that I've met or have written to me, and I get emails every single day or social media messages, who people telling me that they've seen the film and thanking me for it. But so many people remember just going there once and it never left them. And they were so excited. And I'm not even exaggerating. So many people who went there, got curious about it, and only got to go once. And then they got to sort of fulfill their past fantasy to try to understand it or to go back there by watching the film. And the film, it explains a lot. And it's also amazing. A lot of people involved in the story have died, aside from the people that I actually interviewed. But like, you know, this is a story that started in the 1800s. Like, I never got to meet Joseph Horn or Frank Hardart. I never got to meet their children either, though Joe Horn never had any children. But, and I'm no detective. If I can do this, anybody can do this. And part of the success, I think, of the film, too, it's also my Q&As are very popular. I think more so than other directors' Q&As for, I mean, a lot of, I'd say... It's, I think it's very rare that any director is willing to like do as many Q&As as I do. But my story and my own interest, starting as a college student first, it's, it's just interesting to people and just ties it all together. Like, how can we have a story that starts in the 1800s and then you have like a then 25-year-old or whatever in Seattle, Washington that makes it like her mission for a decade to tell this story. Like, why should this story from the 1800s matter today? And, you know, you watch the film and then you're like, gosh, this is, this is totally relevant. And I just, I just love that. The story of the automat, it makes me feel 
connected to the world. The process of making the film has made me feel connected to others. And now, of course, the experience of releasing the film, imagine how that felt and then just times that times a thousand. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you said earlier on that the main demographic of the film are older people who at least at one point went to the automat. But I mean, I'm 32. I saw the movie twice. I think that you're right. It speaks to more universal themes as well. I understand that if someone actually has been to the automat, it might hit on a whole nother level just because they actually remember it. You know, also in terms of if there's the question of whether there is any sort of modern automat or something that is similar in any way. I think the movie makes clear that modern day fast food is not that. You do have Howard Schultz as one of the interviewees. And I don't know if I would consider Starbucks what is there, but it is quite interesting that the founder of the most successful coffee company was influenced by his experiences at the Automat. And I just love that that's the reality. I understand that a lot of people don't like Starbucks, but for Howard Schultz to say that this place was influential for him as an entrepreneur, I was like the happiest person when I found out about the connection between the two. It's definitely not the Horn and Hard Art Automat. It is impossible. It will it will never be back. And that's sad. It's sad. Things dying is really sad. And that's what this is. It's our it's our memories. I mean, we have we have to try to like not think of it this way, but it's like our dead memories. And you know, the film is like our dead memories coming alive. And I think that what Starbucks offers in certain senses is in the vein of the automat. I love the, Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> the communal seating. You only need to buy one cup of coffee there and you can stay all day long. I think that Starbucks are clean. They're eye-catching. They're much more comfortable than a lot of fast food places. They're very uniform. I do like the uniformity. And Horn and, I mean, Horn and Hardart was really, again, it's not revolutionary, but it was very, in a way it is, but it was pioneering how they made everything so uniform across their different locations. But it's comforting. I do like going to chain restaurants. And it doesn't matter where I am, they feel similar. And, you know, some people would say, oh, that's, bad but there's something to it and starbucks i do feel that they're innovating constantly i don't love how you know our cell phones have kind of taken over our lives but it's very innovative the way that starbucks uses their app the point system and to pre-order and i i feel like they really developed the heck out of their app before a lot of other quick service places i'm trying to think like which other chain has an app that's as popular right. as that one and i think also we're talking specifically about the food industry and and the beverage industry but 
as you mentioned before, it's like it's a general approach to starting a company. And also Horn and Harder, it's clear in the documentary, they treated their workers well. And some of the people who are interviewed are former employees of Horn and Harder. So I feel like it's a kind of model that can be applied to pretty much any company. Absolutely. I'm aware of one business school class that has so far watched the film, but I do think that this would be an excellent thing to show in business schools. Hmm. I'm like anyone else. I would like to have financial success too, but how wonderful would it be to do so in a way where you spend your life doing stuff that's good for people? Sure. To make money and, I mean, what is good, right? But um, I don't know. Sometimes you just know. I feel like I hit the jackpot with this film. I know without a doubt that it's it's just like oozing positivity and that it's brought a lot of happiness. And obviously doing good things, It's it doesn't necessarily have to be changing the world. And a lot of things that people are doing, it's just really like... I mean, the automat only took 10 only, you know, it took a decade. And so it took a long time to, there's a lot of work where you're kind of just, you don't see all of the work adding up, amounting to something. And I think some people's pursuits don't even, you can't even finish the pursuit in a whole lifetime. It takes like multiple generations of, uh, you know, like the Israelites wandering through the Sinai desert it was a multi-generational effort, but right, you know, it's a whole different group the, of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm kind of into this idea right now and thinking about my own life is, well, how can I keep up this sort of feeling? And for sure, I didn't make the automat for myself. I really did have in mind our, our audience and like, what do they want? And, you know, honestly, we even probably made some editorial decisions that critics or the critics really loved we got really lucky with the, with the <laughs> critics but like a few critics have commented that we were a little bit too gentle on horn and hard art in you know seeing the the bad things and we totally we had earlier versions of the film where we had more negativity but we really d- did decide to focus on the positives and for example, the company had really toxic leadership towards the end. People that went to jail, people that have been involved in, you know, terrible, terrible, like, accusations against them. And in the very end, the employees of the company, they all lost their pensions. You know, the, the money was squandered away by negligent, greedy executives. And we don't get into that in, in the documentary and we made a decision that we really wanted to make a kind of a a crowd pleaser and we wanted to focus on the the happy stuff and i can see the flaws in that but you know you can only do so much in in our case 79 minutes and we were even aiming for a little bit lower than that but wouldn't you say that it's not like like journalism like, it makes sense. You're trying, it's a movie that's trying to evoke a certain emotion and, and a certain reaction in the audience. It's not like you have a moral responsibility to mention all that. I don't totally get that criticism. 
I don't feel a moral obligation. I think as a young person, I kind of see a different film, alternate film, that might have maybe been even a little more appealing to a wider audience if you sort of maybe dropped some of the nostalgia and you did more of a, you know, an expose type thing. I know the film was very universal, but if you got even less specific about people's memories, like you had some of that stuff, it's hard to say. We were like the very warm, fuzzy, automat, feel-good doc. And there could have been like an automat, more critical business doc and probably also less Jewish, that that (laughs) one. But, you know, I, I had a Jewish audience in mind. I knew we had this Jewish group of interviewees. And I understood the Horn and Hard Art customers over the years in the process of making this film. I had, you know, talked and met so many of them so some people probably would say that it's like wrong to think the way that I'm thinking but like even with my future films I really would just like to make films that people like and I don't have this desire oh I just I'm I need to make the film for me I mean maybe one day there'll be like a topic that's like that like personal for me or something I'm like the Lisa cut. (laughs) But my goal was making people feel joy Mm -hmm. and getting positive reactions. So I honestly, now that I think about it, like with, with that, with, with joy and positive reactions being my goal, this was the right cut of the film, the approach that we took. Yeah. Well, I really, really enjoyed the film. I think it's interesting that what you're describing is also the feeling that Horn and Harder were kind of going for. We definitely have heard from some of the Horn and Hardart relatives that, and this is stuff that's kind of like was passed down through the family, knowledge that was passed down. It really was the intention of Joseph Horn and Frank Hardart to create a place that felt really welcoming and positive to people you know, yes, they wanted to be successful, but they knew that creating a wonderful space was going to be critical to their success. It was always inherent to the values of the company until things, you know, we did, we, like I said, we didn't get into the, the scandals, Well, but I mean, there was a different, that was a different company by then and again which is the israel israelites going through the Mm -hmm. desert like you've got different generations different iterations of the the automat and our film really focuses on the exciting beginning and the glory days and then very quickly rushes (laughs) through the kind of sad fallout which is honestly kind of interesting too it was really interesting watching company employees testify before the senate about losing their pensions and it was amazing footage and it's how on earth did we find that and there's other footage like that too that's sadder footage that just we decided to be up like the automat so 
Well, there listen, for it. the purposes of my podcast, it's just a history thing on Horn and Harder. So yeah. I'm more than happy to end it at 1941 or whatever. Yeah. And we didn't... You could end it in 1941. We ended the film in 1991. We decided sure. not to bring it to the present day, which was kind of a... That was a decision we had to make. There were earlier versions of the film where we like looked at modern day automat concepts and we kind of traced what happened to Horn and Hard Art because nothing is ever as simple as you just close your doors and it's done. The, you know, there were bankruptcy hearings and eventually there was the Philadelphia Company and the New York Company and they both went on to have stories that continued after the last automats closed and we didn't get into that we didn't get into the other kinds of businesses that the company pursued after it closed the restaurants or the the transactions that were made bringing the company out of bankruptcy we decided you don't things don't always have to perfectly wrap up sometimes like a film it's like there's like a clear the the way that the film ends it like I don't know, tells you what to, not necessarily what to think, but we literally just, we kind of, we ended the, it's, I'm very, I have to like give credit to our editor, Michael Levine, for taking us what would be a sad ending and making it inspiring because yes, all things must come to an end, but that doesn't mean we have to forget them. Mm-hmm. And the song helps too. At the end, Mel Brooks writes a song for the film. Yeah, I'm pretty happy about our song. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty groovy. Well, I love the song. <laughs> it's great. Well, Lisa Herbert, thank you so much for being on the podcast. As a 32 year old who has a podcast on history, I feel like probably both of us get asked the question a lot of like why we are interested in the things that we're interested in, but. I feel like, uh, you know, there's a connection there. And thank you so much for doing it. Well, I want to know why you're not doing your podcast drunk. Is that a typical thing? Drunk history? Have you seen that podcast? It's been done. It's been done. It's been done? Yeah. No. Sober history. Sober history. So much more (laughs) wild. What if you did, like, history, like, overly caffeinated? I think that that I'm accomplishing for sure. This is my fourth okay. cup. Is it? I'm, oh, yeah. Oh, well, I'm, drink, I'm drinking decaf, so. Oh, my God. Okay. It, well, I'll make sure next time you're on the podcast, we'll, <laughs> we'll just, you know, down some Red, Red Bulls. Get Red Bull as a yeah. sponsor. That would be Red huge. Bull history. Yes, yes. Or I don't think I could get Red Bull, but maybe I could get I like know, Monster like a, or something. Yeah. One of the second monster tier. Monster history. <laughs> Check out The Automat on Amazon when it comes out on DVD. And thank you again. Thanks for having me, Ben. 